The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. And we're live. It is Wednesday, March 2nd, 5.01 p.m. Eastern Time, 2.01 p.m. Pacific Time, where our guest, um, Professor Amanda Tyler at Berkeley Law School is. Um, We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to get the goss on, well, not actually, I don't think he'll actually give us goss, but we can hope, about uh, Justice Ginsburg. Um, and hear about how you kind of came about writing this book. And I'm going to drop a link in the chat, Justice, Justice, Thou Shall Pursue. And welcome to the show, Amanda. It's so great to see you. It's great to see both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to In Lieu of Fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, and has the monologue. I am going to seize the monologue today uh, because uh, you would never know it from looking at her smiling face but Kate has had a rough week uh, <laughs> and, you know, she hides it well. Um, but you, uh, so uh, first of all, I want to uh, say how you know when Kate is having a rough week, because it's a little bit different from other people who, uh, uh, so there are people who, you know, try to hide that they're having a bad week. Um, uh, Kate is not one of them. Uh, so you might get uh, emails or uh, text messages like, uh, sorry for stewing. I've been stewing about this far too long and it's just not healthy and I have to move past this. Uh, and then a few minutes later, feeling super bummed today. Um, you might get like 30 of those text messages in a very short space of time. Um, and so when Kate is having a bad day, it's not just not subtle. Um, and so I thought, you own it. I just thought it was uh, important uh, to have a monologue designed to cheer Kate up. So here are 10 things, 10 extemporaneous things that you didn't know about Kate uh, oh, no. that I think are like the best. Um, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really feeling sorry that Amanda has to watch this. No, 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 no. This, this is just the cheer Kate up monologue. Okay, so here is something you wouldn't know about Kate from watching this show because she uh, actually uh, comes on the show every day and she's uh, pretty lighthearted and she never seems uh, absurdly stressed out or anything, but Kate works incredibly hard. And um, like, it's just not actually visible at five o'clock because she's like, she's sometimes like, uh, might say she's a little frazzled or anything, but she's got a, a serious teaching load and she's spent the last six months working on this uh, massive article about antitrust uh, and big tech. Um, and, she is putting in just uh, intense uh, hours. 
and she's actually carrying it pretty well. Like you, you wouldn't know it. So just want to say like, for all of you who think like, like, you know, she's a, 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 a pampered professor who has time to do this show. She actually doesn't have time to do this show. She just doesn't. <laughs> anyway. uh, so that's, that's thing true. That is totally oh, no, true. There's not really going to be 10 of these, Ben. You're going to have to move it along. <laughs> You're going to be here all day. All right. I'll bring it down to three. Okay. Um, secondly, uh, Kate recently introduced me to, or not that recently, but uh, what has become my absolute favorite cocktail, which is oh, the true. aviation. And I have been spreading it around Lawfare. Uh, the other day, we 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 had drinks to uh, uh, welcome a new, uh, uh, hopefully, contributor to the site. And uh, there were aviations all around. And this is very uh, Kate Klonick. Uh, number three, and uh, this is important. Um, and I, I, I have to confess failure on this on my part. Uh, uh, Kate... Uh, uh, will occasionally just text me apropos of nothing. Can today be a hat day? And um, uh, and uh, she takes enormous joy in uh, other people's weird eccentricities, like my uh, Rudyard Kipling hat um, and, and your so, dog shirts and yeah, the dog shirts. Uh, and uh, I, she actually asked for this to be a hat day. And I forgot to get the hat, so I may it's actually okay, then. get up in the middle of the show and go get the hat. Um, but uh, that is just uh, uh, three things, uh, 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 endearing things about Kate Klonick that you didn't know, or you may have known the third one. Um, but I, I could go on. I'm not going to because we're not allowed to have fun anymore, and we want to get to our guest. But say something nice about Kate in the goddamn oh chat. Oh my god. Thanks, Ben. That was like, <laughs> that was very sweet. Um, but seriously, Amanda, welcome to our really bizarre little show. Um, it doesn't usually start by us just like complimenting each other, although uh, it could. Um, but, I think that's uh, a great way to start a show. It was a very, I think, very you know, we, we've been doing this for a long time now. I mean, we were doing it literally seven days a week for a year and a half. Uh, we missed one day. Um, and um, uh, and so it becomes like, you know, at some point, like, you know, people really well when you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like very true. Um, so, so how did you come to be writing a book with Justice Ginsburg? Yes, please tell us everything. Speaking of knowing people really well. Well, um, by way of background, for those who don't know it, I am a law professor at UC Berkeley. But before that, I was a law clerk to Justice Ginsburg. So that's how I came to work for her initially and get to know her. And that was from 1999 to 2000, which it turns out was a pretty auspicious year to be a Supreme Court law clerk because there was a clerk down the hall in a chambers that belonged to a man named Stephen Breyer, who is currently nominated to take his place. So it was a very it's exciting cool. Year. Very cool. Um, just really actually incredibly cool. Um, and I, but, you know, shifting to my clerkship, working for Justice Ginsburg was an absolute dream. I can talk a lot about that if you're interested. So I have one question about clerking for Justice okay. Ginsburg, whom, you know, I got to know socially over the years. And um, whenever you talk to her, she would always look down and 
I could hear about 60% of what she said. And, um, and so my question is, how did- What was the other 40%? No, how did clerking for her work? Um, did, did she, did she talk more loudly? Was there, was there like a special trick to getting her to actually look at you when she talked so that you could hear her? So she was, I mean, this is the thing that was so interesting about her becoming the notorious RBG. If you clerked for her pre-notorious, which is, which is someone like me, a little bit older, this was shocking to us. Because she was, I mean, you described her very well. She was very quiet. In big events, she would always sort of find her way to the back corner. And she's not someone who sought out the limelight, who was loud or, or you know, really boisterous. You would never describe her that way. And so then for her to morph into this larger-than-life figure, it was fascinating to watch you know, as her law clerk, what I found is that she would sometimes, and other clerks had the same experience, She, we had phones within the chambers, and sometimes she would call you on the phone to talk about a case, and you'd just be two offices away. And my reaction was, I want to look somebody in the eye when I'm talking to them, if I can. So I would always say, hold on, boss, I'll be right in, and I'd hang up and walk into her office. And that way we could have a, a face-to-face interaction. Um, and, and, you know, that way, I think it was also easier to draw her out, uh, especially if it was just the two of you in her office. It was easier to see uh, and hear and all of those things. So that was what I always did. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I can talk a lot more about that experience, but to connect it to the book, there's a 20 year gap. So in those 20 years, I had the great fortune of staying, you know, keeping connected to her. She was one of the biggest mentors in my life and in my career. I never made a decision, frankly, about either my personal or my professional life without talking to her. She was something of a North Star in my life. And I was very lucky. I I mean, I was lucky for lots and lots of reasons, but one of them was she liked to come and do events at the law schools where I taught. And in fact, when I moved to Berkeley, she said, oh, I'd love to come out to California. And I didn't act on that. And then I saw her again and she said it again. And I saw her a third time and she said, you know, this is getting ridiculous. What do I have to do to get invited to Berkeley? (laughs) Well, anytime, of course, I tried not to go to the well too often. So she came to Berkeley actually twice. And the second time she came is what led to the book. She came in the fall of 2019. She was supposed to come in January of 2019, but you may recall in the late fall, early winter of 2018, she fell and she broke a rib and they discovered lung cancer. And she would not cancel initially on our event, which was really classic Ginsburg. She was always full steam ahead, no matter what was thrown in her way. And this was true throughout her life. But the event at Berkeley was really, really important to her as well. It was an event to honor Herma Hill Kay, who had been our first woman dean and who had written the very first gender discrimination in the law casebook with Justice Ginsburg. And Herma died in 2017. So Justice Ginsburg was coming to give a a lecture in Herma's honor and do an event in Herma's honor. And that's why it was personally really meaningful to her and important to her to come. 
we wound up delaying. She did not want to delay. I finally had to like get her family and her doctor. Yeah. How no, do you like, how do you say you no come. to her? Yeah. <laughs> <You're not laughs> Um, but she did, we, so we immediately rescheduled, which was great. And she came in the fall. Um, so this is the fall of 2019 and she passed in September of 2020. She was not at full steam and I'm getting a little off track, but I, I, I can't talk about this experience without mentioning this. She, she was not at full steam and she was struggling behind the scenes and yet somehow I watched her as I had when I was her law clerk. And that was the first time she had cancer, just really muster up this determination that she was going to do this event and she was going to honor Herma. And it was so important to her. And even though behind the scenes, she was really struggling. When we went out on stage for me to interview her, you would never have known she was on and, and she was just spectacular. And so the book was actually something that came out of that because Herma had written uh, her final book before she died, which was a book called Paving the Way. And it's a book about the first American women law professors who came before Herma and RBG. And nobody would publish it. And Justice Ginsburg and I, meanwhile, were planning for this interview about her life and her work. And we'd spent a lot of time, as you always did with anything with RBG. She was always the most prepared person in the room. So we had gone back and forth and back I countless times over what I was going to ask her and what coverage we were going to have. And all of this happens at the same time that the University of California Press is looking at Herma's book a second time, having turned it down before. And the justice and I got this idea that maybe we could take our conversation and my interview with her about her life and we could turn that into a book and offer it exclusively to UC Press on the condition that it be a twofer that we would only give them our book if they agreed to publish it alongside Herma's book. And that's a very long-winded story. I'm sorry, maybe it's more than you wanted to No, no, But no, I'd love great. to tell it because that is a window into the Ruth Bader Ginsburg who I knew and one of the many lessons that she taught me, which is, you know, she was someone who used her position to lift up others. And it was really important to her in particular to lift up other women and to preserve the history of the women who had come before her, because she knew that people like me and so many others looked to her as someone who broke down barriers and opened up opportunities. But there were others before her, and she really thought it important to honor them and preserve their stories. And so that's how our book came into being. And then we spent the rest of the year deciding what we would include and, and how to put it all together. And that was just unbelievable fun to get to work with her closely again, 20 years after being her clerk. So before we go into that process, because I think uh, it's a super interesting question, how do you work with somebody who is, as you describe, significantly in decline, um, uh, who, for whom you have clerked when she was very much in her prime, uh, as a as a judge, as a justice. Um, but tell us first of all about the book. So what is it and and what, you know what is the thematic content? So the book is built around this interview in which I draw her out or I certainly tried to draw her out and, and like to think I did pretty well to get her to tell in her own words her life story. And she talks about, her childhood, she talks about her marriage, her family, her career, every step of her career. 
I wish we had gone on longer. We had more to cover, uh, but we ran out of time. I remember being on the stage and the U.S. Marshal was right over her shoulder. So right in my eye line, and he's doing this to me. Yeah, the marshals are adorably protective of the justices. Yes. And, and I kept going and I kept going until he's, you know, he's doing this again. And I'm thinking, okay, all right, all right, I'll let her, I need to let her go. Um, but I have a, a funny story about that at the end of it, if you want to come back to it. But so then we went back and, and we said, okay, well, we have this conversation. What materials can we bring in? an ad that will complement the conversation and sort of draw out some of it more. And we particularly wanted to include things where possible that she hadn't published before. So she has an earlier book called My Own Words, which includes a lot of speeches and other things. And we didn't want to duplicate them, duplicate that. We wanted complementary books. And so what we did is we have a section on her time as an advocate. And we include, I think this is really cool, RBG fans, I think, would would really like this. The very first brief she ever wrote in a gender discrimination case that she wrote with her husband. And that had never before been published. It's not online anywhere. We, we had the hard copy that she had typed. So um, that's really cool. And then she picked her two favorite oral arguments before the Supreme Court from the 1970s. And we include the transcripts of those and annotated them with notes to sort of contextualize everything. And then I said to her, this was a really fun part. You know, I called her justice or boss. I said, boss, what were your very favorite opinions? If someone picks up this book and and they're only going to read a handful of your opinions as representative of your entire 27 years on the Supreme Court, over a thousand opinions, which ones do you want them to read? And um, well, over a thousand opinions in her 40 year career, I should say, as a judge, she picked four. And so we included those. um, And I wrote summaries at the beginning to contextualize them because three of them are dissents. So you need to know, obviously, what they're responding to. And we didn't want to include also the majority opinions. So we have those. And they're really, I think, how she thought of her legacy. And then finally, well, almost finally, we have her final speeches. And they're really special because they give you a, a window into what she was thinking about at the end of her life her values, her influences. There's a wonderful speech, for example, about Jewish women that influenced her. And there's a beautiful speech that was absolutely supposed to be the final installment in the book. And it's a speech that she gave at a naturalization ceremony where she talks about being the child of immigrants. And it is so beautiful and so wonderful. As I said, it was supposed to be the final installment, but we turned the book into UC Press three weeks before she passed away. And that meant that I wound up writing an afterword, which I did right after she passed away when the publisher said, unsurprisingly, they wanted to rush the book. So that, it turns out, is the final installment. But we also included um, her remarks that she gave about Herma Hill Kay before I interviewed her. We included Herma's testimony at the justices' um, confirmation proceedings. And the book starts with an introduction, which is which I wrote and she edited, which is an overview of her career and, and also how the book came into being. And then finally, we included a lot of images, some of which have never been published before. And so those those were really fun. And and then sadly, after she died, when I went to Washington to um, you know stand by her casket at the Supreme Court, 
I had the opportunity to go back and visit her office. And I walked around her office and just spent some time there looking at the pictures that were on her desk and on her mantle that I knew were so important to her. And there were a couple we hadn't included. And so I added those. And I added a few pictures from when she lay in state and when she was um, lying at the Supreme Court, including one that is really my favorite and I think she would have loved, which is of a little girl dressed as Supergirl saluting her. And um, I just, I think that is just such a beautiful picture. And I was so happy to be able to put that in. Oh, sorry, I had muted myself. Um, that's so lovely. I mean, what was, I mean, it kind of sounds amazing that you were able to have this type of personal relationship with her. Um, and it sounds like very special. It doesn't sound like she had this with all of her clerks. Like, do you know, kind of, do you have any sense of like, kind of why you guys got on so well or why you were so close? You know, I think she did have good relationships with a large number of her clerks. She was somebody who really invested in her clerks, certainly if you let her. Um, and by that, I mean, she she picked up the phone for you. She would call people and say, you should hire this, this person. She's amazing or he's amazing. She's someone who went out of her way to, um, you know, acknowledge major events in your life. So, um, you know, I've talked about this before. Some of you may not know this, but when, when you clerked for her, if you had a child, you immediately received a gift in the form of a t-shirt with the Supreme Court crest on it. And it said future RBG, or no, it said RBG grand clerk. It didn't say there was no future. It was RBG grand clerk. So, you know, she just celebrated every aspect of your life. And I just, you know, I mean, she, as I said, she was like a North Star to my life. So I made a point of trying to keep up with her and stay connected to her because she was an endless font of great wisdom and advice and support. And I just felt so lucky all that time to, to have her in my life. It was just really special. And she did this with people who were not clerks. I think that's right. Too. I, I have a... a I'm going to be vague about this, but I have a friend who's a you know prominent conservative lawyer, uh, and he uh, had a uh, you know a personal tragedy in his life, and the first note that showed up at his house was from RBG, uh, just you know explain you know just saying how much she valued him as a as a as a uh, uh, as an advocate before the court, and um, they were extreme, they remained extremely close until her death. Uh, you know, she she had, you know, the famous example, of course, is her relationship with Scalia. But um, but that's actually a example, um, not a. It's not a singular instance by any means. Mm -hmm. She was, she was exceptionally good to people. She also had clerks that were, you know, this is used to be common and became rare. She had ideologically diverse clerks, um, mm -hmm. and um, I, I, I'm thinking of the libertarian law professor David Post, who you would not think of as philosophically 
simpatico. I did not know that David RBG. Post was an RBG clerk. That's so, he, I, that's so I believe funny. he was an RBG clerk both at the DC circuit and then she brought him back when she early in her oh wow uh, early in her Supreme Court tenure. Uh, somebody would have to check me about that. Uh, you know, she right. had she. I'm I'm not getting that wrong, right? I think that's right. Um, I I, you know the the it's a, she was somebody who had serious, diverse, and deep relationships, and uh, and was, I think, uh, beautifully unapologetic about it. You know, she mm -hmm. um, people there was a kind of, there was always this bewilderment about her relationship with Scalia and her attitude was, oh, fuck that. He's a fun guy and he's interesting. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think there was, but she, but she was exceptionally good to and close with a lot of people who were not, who were not even people who had clerked for her. Mm -hmm. She was just an incredibly caring person. I, I mean, I have so many stories I can tell, but there were there have been a couple of times in my life where I've gone through very difficult periods, and and like you said, Ben, she was one of the first people to reach out, and then not just reach out initially, but keep checking in. How are you doing? How's it going? How are, are things better? You know, when you have a sick child or some something like that. She was always there and, and she just was an incredibly kind and caring person. And unfortunately, a lot of, you know, the public never got to see that side of her. But I think that's part of it, certainly for me, a big part of the explanation for why there's so much loyalty and love for her among people who did know her, because she was that kind of a person. Yeah, um, just in terms of kind of the day-to-day -day working on something like this for her how did it compare to do to writing this book like and kind of editing it and kind of being in touch with her as kind of i don't know you were a pretty fully formed adult when you clerked for her but like but you know like kind of in a different type of was it still the same dynamic as when you had clerked yes and um in, in some ways that's not necessarily a good thing so some there are some embarrassing stories and they're embarrassing for me not for her um when i clerked for her and, and most clerks will tell you this was what it was like to clerk for her you would turn in a draft and it would come back you would turn it in triple space she always said triple spaced to make sure there was plenty of room for corrections and it would come back completely covered completely covered in in uh, corrections and rewrites. And then you would try to see if there was any type left on the page that you had given her. And you would go back and forth sometimes 20, 30 times, depending how important the opinion was, until finally you would get it back and it would say just right in the corner. And that meant it could go to the printer. Fast forward 20 years later, I'm working with her 21 years later, I'm working with her on the book and I'm sending her pages, like for example, the introduction. Eerily, she was, I remember when we sent her those, or when I sent her those through her assistants, she was in the hospital getting treatment. And I say eerily because, as I mentioned, the first year I clerked for her, or the when I clerked for her, I should say, was the first time she had cancer. And she spent a significant chunk of that year in the hospital getting treatment. And what we would do then is what they did again in the summer of 2020, 
we would print everything out hard copy for her, including if relevant a cover note, and that would go to the hospital. Well, so they did this in the summer of 2020, and they printed out my cover email for her and the and the introduction. And I remember I said, "Oh, I think we can send it double space, don't you?" And they're like, "Yeah, no, no, it, <laughs> don't get don't get too cocky." And sure enough, not only does the introduction come back completely marked up, I mean, no less than 20 years earlier when I was her law clerk, which shows you that I probably haven't developed nearly as much as I should have in the interim period, the cover email that was printed out comes back with corrections on it. I am not making this up. Extensive corrections. Sounds like my mother. (laughs) That was who she was. And what I think is quite remarkable and why I tell this story publicly, even though it's very embarrassing for me, What I think is quite remarkable about it is that this, we're talking about weeks before she died and she was still that meticulous and that careful and that attendant to detail, even the smallest detail. And so, you know, I mean, she was physically declining, but mentally she was 100% all there right up until the end and just totally dedicated to, to having anything that went out under her name be the, you know, at the top quality. Well, the last time I saw her, I guess it was the the last New Year's Eve before COVID. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm like, time is whatever it is, but I, I we were at, both at the same New Year's Eve gathering and she was very interested in talking to me. And I would love to tell you that was because she was reading Lawfare or because, you know, she was interested in my work or anything, but it actually was, had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the fact that she wanted to tell me about what was up with her granddaughter, Clara, who had uh, interned for me a number of years earlier and had done some work for Lawfare when she was in, in law school and um, who had, written a paper with me um, and uh, RBG was ferociously proud of Clara um, and um, uh, and was in her, uh, you know, bottled up, um, uh, you know, stare at the ground, sort of, you can't hear 90% of what she said kind of way, just itching to like, I was, you know, she was going to tell me about Clara and her husband Rory and what was up with them, and she was just super excited to, you know, in that very measured way to, uh, um, and that was, uh, you know, super endearing and um, uh, and uh, you know, there's no punchline to this story. <laughs> just like a really great story, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things, well, we we got to meet for the first time at um, a state AG conference that was um, kind of the, the theme was kind of um, the civil discourse that had been able to like kind of happen between um, Judge Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg and kind of to bridge the kind of conservative and progressive divide. Um, and I don't know, I, there have been lots of stories about them at the opera and there were stories that people have shared over the years, but like, do you have any particular stories that you think 
but like that are in the book or that you, you know, like how did they become such good friends? Like, did they just have very similar kind of warm personalities? Like I just kind of like, or like, was it, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious. So I think they became friends initially on the DC circuit. They both served on the DC circuit first and the friendship must have happened quickly and they really seemed to click. And what my understanding is the families really became good friends and they used to celebrate New Year's Eve as uh, both families together every year. My supposition as to why she and he in particular clicked is that there was a lot about Justice Scalia that reminded you of Marty Ginsburg and the contrary was true as well. They had these big, larger than life personalities. They were both incredibly funny. And they both and had that them. gregarious uh, charm quality. Yes. And they both liked to give her a hard time. And I think she quite actually liked that because it certainly was part of the magic that was her incredible marriage. And when you watched her and Scalia interact, you saw a lot of the same. He would really sort of give her a hard time and he could really make her laugh. In, in a way that I think only Marty could as well. And so I think that was a big part of it. And then, you know, I've talked a lot about this, including at the conference we were at, Kate. They, they had a deep respect for each other's intellect. And I think that was really important. They believed that they were sort of worthy adversaries of one another. And they really also enjoyed engaging and and having these sort of intellectual jousting matches with one another. And I think when you put all that together, along with the fact that they actually had quite a lot in common and a lot of common ground on which they met. So they both loved this country. They both loved the constitution. They interpreted it wildly differently, right? But they both believed in it. They believed in the rule of law. They loved their families. They both came from immigrant families. They both, um, loved the opera, loved food, loved good wine. They, I mean, they had a lot in common. And so when you put all that together, it actually made for a great uh, friendship and a great sort of relationship. You know, a lot of people have told a lot of stories about that friendship. Um, there's the one great story that's told often is of Judge Sutton coming in, a former Scalia clerk coming into the Scalia chambers and learning that the justice is sending Justice Scalia is sending Justice Ginsburg roses on her birthday like he did every year. And Sutton says, apparently, why, why are you doing that? And Scalia's response is, some things are more important than votes. And I love that story. But my favorite story is... And by the way, Sutton, who now sits on the Sixth Circuit, would be totally among the most likely people to behave that way now. Yes. Um, with, um, and you know, I, I think it's it's an interesting example of how the that relationship actually impacted other people's, you know, people who came in as kind of much more fire breathing, you can't be friends with the enemy. Um, uh, I mean, Jeff Sutton is a genuinely lovely person who would certainly send roses and one of the most divided courts in the country um, uh, to somebody whom he disagreed with. Absolutely. And, I, and I'll say it like Jeff Sutton and I are good friends um, because we also have a lot in common. We both played college soccer. So we talk about that every time we see each other. And um, 
and I've I've written about his his last book, which I think is a fabulous book, Fifty One Imperfect Solutions. So you know, if you want to hear another Scalia story, this is a favorite, and and um, I don't know if anybody's ever talked about this publicly. I haven't, but um, it's just a really fun story where uh, he came in, or maybe I did tell this at the conference. Now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but he he came into our chambers and I was on the desk that was right near the entrance to the chambers. And he walks in and her office is, is this way. It's the other side. And he's holding uh, this long package and it's wrapped in newspaper. And before the smell hits me, because of the way that I was raised, I know there's a fish in there that you wrap a fish in newspaper when you catch a big fish. And, and sure enough, the smell hits me. And I look at him. I said, what are you doing? And he goes, just wait. Count to three after I go in the door and she'll scream. <laughs> he walks. He beelines for her office. Doesn't knock. Just goes. The door was closed. Doesn't knock. Just walks right in. And I, you know, in my head, I go one, two. And you hear her <laughs> scream because he opens up. <laughs> and it is a huge fish. I can't fit the whole size. I mean, it's like three or four feet long. <laughs> And as he's coming out, he just winks at me and keeps going. <laughs> so, you know, that's a window into that relationship. And I could have just as easily seen Marty do that to her. So I think that was a big part of it. And, you know, but to be serious, she gave beautiful remarks at his memorial in which she talked about their friendship and how much she valued it. And she also talked about the substantive aspect of it. She talked about how grateful she was. And I think she genuinely meant this to have had his dissent and an early preview of it in the VMI case in which she wrote for the court holding that the Virginia Military Institute had to open its doors to female cadets. He was the only dissenter and he gave her, as I said, an early preview of that dissent. And she talked about this and she said, because of that dissent and because we went back and forth after that numerous times, every iteration of my majority opinion was better than the prior iteration. And that was a window into how important it was to her to be able to engage with those with whom she disagreed in order to, to more fully flesh out her own position and defend it better. And I tell that story all the time to my students because I think it's an incredibly important lesson for young lawyers, never mind people more generally to which it also applies, but certainly young lawyers who have these ambitions of changing the world. Well, you, you need to understand the other side and you need to engage with it in order to be more successful as an advocate for your own positions. Can I, can I ask a question, which is, and you don't need to get into specifics about like the different justices or whatever, but was that through that kind of, was that kind of like bettering of an opinion through working through the dissent? Was that always true of like all of the justices or was this particular, particularly true of those two and like what do you kind of if you had to guess what would you say that type of kind of give and take is like at the moment mm -hmm. in the on the court so i can only you know speak about my own experience and the rest will be speculation but when i clerked at the court it, you know it really depended on the case and it depended on the justice justice ginsburg as i've said was so meticulous that she if she wrote an opinion and there was a dissent to it, she would take that dissent very seriously. And she would go back and really try to address it and engage with it. And 
Sometimes that would result in the descent being reworked and recirculated, at which point she'd go back and she'd keep working on it. And my understanding, it wasn't my term, but my understanding from what she said publicly about BMI is this happened back and forth quite a few times, um, quite, quite many times. Some cases that doesn't happen. You know, when I clerked, I saw some cases where a dissent would come around and the majority opinion would not get changed. But I think it's relatively common to see at least one round of changes to engage with the arguments that are being presented on the other side. And I certainly think that makes for a better opinion on both scores. I mean, the dissent is obviously already framed in a way that it's reacting to a target to the majority opinion. For the majority opinion not to engage back after the fact, I think is uh, leads to opinions that are not as successful. And, you know, this is something else I, I bring into my teaching. I teach a, a seminar on the Supreme Court, and it's a great class. It's so much fun to teach. Half the content changes every year because we spend half the weeks doing the most high profile pending cases of that particular term. And then I have the students pick one of the cases and they have to write final opinions in them. But I say opinions plural. They have to write both a majority and a dissent. And I tell them that their grade is largely going to be influenced by how much those two opinions engage with one another. That if they talk past each other, they're not gonna be as successful. Hmm. So it's a way for me to really try and ingrain this way, this approach to my students. In terms of what the, the court is doing right now, I'm not sure, but I do, I do think, um, you know, probably a lot of the same in the merits cases where they're having full briefing and argument. And, you know, part of what makes me say that is we've had some very high profile cases in the in the fall and the December calendar. We haven't seen those opinions yet. That suggests that we're having this back and forth going on. Um, but what, where we're not seeing it is in the shadow docket, the so-called shadow docket. That's becoming something of a loaded term. Um, I think it's actually an accurate term to describe a wealth of decisions that we're seeing come out of the court where we're not having the normal processes play out. We're having quick decisions without argument most of the time, um, without full briefing most of the time, and then very quick opinions coming out. And we're seeing a lot of corrections of those opinions because they're being issuing, being issued so quickly, excuse me. And we're seeing, um, I think a lot of opinions, when you read them, they're just not in conversation with each other. And I think for all of the above reasons, the lack of full consideration and normal processes, in addition to the end product being, I think, weaker, this is a really unfortunate trend that we're seeing. You know, Steve Vladek is writing a whole book on this. I can't wait to read it um, because it's a really significant change in the way the Supreme Court is operating. And if you look back, particularly on the last two years, there are very, very significant decisions coming down through the shadow docket. So that's a really unfortunate development in my view. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, we're going to go to questions. Um, the first one we have is from Mateo. Uh, hey, Mateo, how are you doing? Good, how's it going? Uh, go for it. All right. Uh, I imagine you get this question a lot, but today I'm the one who gets to ask it. Uh, and it's concerning um, the criticism that Justice Ginsburg gets for having not retired during the Obama administration. Uh, I'm curious uh, how fair you think that criticism is, or if there's some parts of it that you agree with, some that you don't. And 
Maybe if you ever heard her express, you know, when she was uh, having health problems, uh, you know, towards the end of her life, uh, her or those around her express some regret before she ultimately passed away. So I did not um, have that experience in, in terms of talking to her about this in the last year of her life. What I can say, what I, what I, what I have come to believe is that a big part of the reason why she didn't retire, in addition to those that she stated publicly, namely that she loved the job, which she did. She absolutely loved the job. And that she thought she was still going at full steam during the Obama years, which a lot of her opinions suggest she was. I mean, she wrote some of her most famous opinions during those years, including, for example, her really important and in my view, tour de force descent in the Shelby County case, that comes during that period. Uh, but in addition to all of that, I've come to believe that one of the reasons she didn't step down and one of the reasons she loved the job so much was because it was about service to country. And you have to understand a little bit about who she was and where she came from to understand just how deep her devotion was to, the, to this country. She talks about this in our book, in that final speech, that magnificent speech that she gave at a naturalization ceremony. She talks about how this country gave her family refuge. They were fleeing persecution in Europe, like so many other Jews, and this country welcomed them in. And she talks about in that speech how in one generation, a bookkeeper in the garment district has a child who winds up on the Supreme Court. And all of this together, I think, bred a really deep devotion and love for country that led her to service. She wanted to be a judge because she wanted to serve her country. She once said to um, another clerk that if she'd never been elevated to the Supreme Court, she would have still been thrilled because she was serving her country on the DC circuit. And so I think because that was so hardwired in her and because she really thought she was going full steam when Obama was president. That's why she held on. Now, what would have happened? What if? There's so many what ifs. If Hillary Clinton had won, my guess is that she would have retired. And she would have been very proud to retire to give that nomination to the first woman president. That, of course, is not what happened. And so we wound up where we wound up. And that is very unfortunate, particularly because of the timing. Um, but, you know, for, for lots of reasons, but the timing was especially not great. Um, we were already into the election at the time that she died. Voting was already starting, but you know, it, it is what it is. I, I never asked her, I never put to her at the end, do you have any regrets? I, I did not ever feel it was my place to put that question to her. Yeah. I will just say on on this point that she actually did in her own way publicly express uh if not a regret at least a sense of what the right answer to the problem was and she did that on her deathbed in uh uh through her granddaughter whom i mentioned earlier who uh uh, Clara made clear that she had given this uh, statement that she hoped her 
successor would be proved, uh, named by the next administration uh, or the winner of the next election. And so I, I think I think in her own way, that was, if not saying I screwed up, at least saying um, uh, that there was, you know, a potentially problematic consequence of her decision. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, Genevieve, you're in the audience today. Hello. Hi, everybody. Um, so I have a question because uh, the footnotes sometimes have all the best stuff. And one of the footnotes in your introduction shares that um, Justice Ginsburg and her husband had considered going to business school instead of law school. Yeah. Do you have a favorite footnote in the book? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, what's your Caroline product footnote? That is a fabulous question, and I've never been asked that. I have some. Um, I did think that was really interesting until I interviewed her, and I had interviewed her before. I'd never known that they were thinking about business school, and the only reason they didn't go, she said, <laughs> this is very funny, she said, um, Marty was fixated on going to Harvard. Like, you just snap your fingers and you go to Harvard, I guess, if you're Marty Ginsburg. And, um, and, and they, the business school didn't take women. So that left law. There we are. Um, you know, one of my favorite footnotes, the one that comes to mind based on your question, is uh, a footnote in the oral arguments. She made reference in one of the oral arguments to a case that was in the D.C. Circuit, and it had to do with one of the federal military academies. And it really spun a lot of thinking in my, on my part, because that case was potentially going to make its way to the Supreme Court. Where uh, And the, the issue was the federal military academies did not admit women. So these are precursor cases really to VMI. And what's interesting is she highlights that and she highlighted um, there and elsewhere the, the fact that eventually we see a legislative fix to that issue. It's not litigated to the Supreme Court. Congress steps in, President Ford steps in, and we see the U.S. military academies become co-ed in the 1970s, 1996 is when the court decided VMI. So that is almost a 20 year, roughly 20 year gap between the two. And all of that spins into something that I think is really significant about Justice Ginsburg. She had had a case in the seventies, a different case that involved single sex high schools for uh, so-called gifted kids high achieving kids. And it was in Philadelphia. And that case was called Vorchheimer. We also talked about that in the conversation. She lost that case. There's a long story behind that, which I can tell, but it really bothered her that she lost that case for all kinds of reasons. And VMI comes about 20 years later and really effectively overturns Vorchheimer. And so all of that is a long way of saying she's someone who played the long game. And really just stayed the course, even when things didn't look good. And that strikes me as a really timely issue right now, because if you're progressive and you care of, about a lot of different issues and how the Supreme Court decides them, the landscape is not looking very good. Um, so the other lesson out of this and the, and the reason that footnote and that broader story is significant is that there was a legislative fix. And so I think another lesson to take out of all of this and something that she talked about and talks about in the book um, is that you shouldn't just be fixated on courts when you're thinking about progress and advancing positions for which 
you want to advocate, you should also be looking to the political process because sometimes that will be more fruitful. Yeah, that's a great point. Richard. Hi, um, this, this is great having you on here. I You've made it easy for me to um, figure out some birthday and Mother's Day and so on presents. So thanks. Um, You're welcome. I'm glad to hear so, it. <laughs> um, so uh, we've seen the Burger Rehnquist and Roberts Court steadily tear down much of the law and legislation that liberals had championed in the mid 20th century. And I'm just curious what parts of Justice Ginsburg's legacy are going to be difficult or impossible for Roberts Court or conservative courts to, uh, you know, going forward to dismantle? That's a really important question. I mean, first, to answer it, you have to define what her legacy is. And I think in so doing, you can't just look at her time as a judge and justice. You have to very much incorporate her time as an advocate in the 1970s. You know, I've said, a lot of other people have said, if she'd never been on the Supreme Court, it still would have been a very big deal when she died. We would still be holding her out as a really important American because in the 1970s, through her work and the work of others, American society as we know it completely changed. And being a woman who was born in the 1970s, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that because the opportunities afforded me versus my mother are night and day, absolutely but, night and day. And just to emphasize, on the current Supreme Court, there is, I mean, maybe if you forced the issue and there were, you know, you might, maybe you have one or two votes to undo that stuff because there are some people who are sort of really not interested in, in, uh, in stare decisis as an idea. But there is simply no appetite for uh, revisiting the basic framework that gender is a feature of 14th Amendment jurisprudence and that you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex. And yes. that is just bedrock stuff God for that, small. Ev <laughs> that everybody accepts. No, but, yes. it's, but, but if it's 1974, 1975, these principles are, you know, that's my lifetime. I, I, I existed then and th those principles were not established. And th those cases were all argued by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And by the way, most of them on behalf of men, interestingly. Yes, many of them, yes. Um, and she, and the capstone of them is VMI, which she writes as a justice. And and these, there's just no appetite to revisit. You think Amy Coney Barrett wants to revisit any of that stuff? I mean, that no. that's as, as baked into our constitutional fabric as anything right now. No, and that's why actually I, I led by saying it depends how we define her legacy, because I think that is a hugely significant part of her legacy. And I think you're right that 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 we're not going to be fighting over. We're going to be fighting over the, the issues that arose when she was on the court and the issues that arose in cases where we have very closely divided courts, especially now that we've had the turnover we've had. We have some justices who do not hold stare decisis in a particular 
high esteem, if you will. And um, there is an appetite for revisiting some things. So we'll see. But you, I think the gender equality stuff, separate and apart from reproductive rights, there's a lot of overlap there. But if you carve that out, I don't think that we will see that touched on. But what she, you know, she was really concerned that even on that score, there was still work to do. Remember, she's in dissent in Lily Ledbetter, uh, a really important gender-based pay discrimination case. But notably, Congress comes in and fixes that. Um, she was in dissent in really important reproductive rights cases and and in really important voting rights cases. I mean, there are other areas as well. But those are areas where since her passing, we see further curtailment of the progress that had been made before. And so, you know, when I think about working on this book with her and, and have really had a long time now to reflect on that and, and what she chose and what we included, it's not surprising to me that three of the four opinions she designated were dissents and dissents in these areas because she really saw that this was an ongoing effort to try and scale back some of that progress. And she really believed it was important, I think, for lack of a better way to say it, to sort of leave marching orders for people to keep fighting and keep doing the work that she cared so much about and fought for when she was on the court. Can I, I we have to go to the last question, but I just really quickly want to just because Ben brought it up, I can't resist asking, which is that I wrote, so I was like in college, but I wrote my my my, my honors thesis um, about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and one of the things that like, one of the like the kind of the, the amazing kind of capstone books of it is um, Why We Lost the ERA by Jane Mansbridge, which basically says that essentially we, don't need it because by the time the ERA really came push to shove, women had achieved so much equality through the courts and these step-by-step -step kind of decisions that there was no need for this kind of baked in constitutional moment. Do you have any idea what Ginsburg thought about like the ERA specifically and how she kind of viewed that trade-off? Yeah, that was one of the questions that we didn't get to in our interview. And I asked her if we could sort of type it out and add it back into the book. And she said, no, 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 the interview was good. But we had prepped it and we had talked about it. And she, I think, very much felt like major, major progress obviously had been achieved through her work and, and the work of others with respect to the Equal Protection Clause. But even at the end, she still wanted an ERA and she wanted it for many reasons. The biggest one was, and I've got my pocket constitution here. I keep Aww. it always close by. And just in case some of my students are watching, they would be really upset if I didn't pull it out right now. She wanted to be able to open this up and see it written down as part of our core charter that the genders are equal. And she said she wanted her grandchildren and her great grandchildren to be able to see that. It is in a lot of other modern constitutions, but it's not in ours. Yeah. And you know, that's that's an, a significant point. Yeah, it's a, it, well, the, Mansbridge kind of ends with this too, which is that the symbolism of it is immense, the ability to see that. So I think that that's a great point. Paula, the last question is all yours. You're in green rectangle, go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, so I'm a student at Michigan at the law school here. And one of the things that more broadly, when I read opinions, I wonder what is the relationship between clerks and the justices when they put out an opinion like who's writing who and 
not specifically for Justice Ginsburg, but I was reading an opinion the other day and I, I'm pretty sure there was a misquote in it and something that it, and I think my professor pointed out as well. And it's very interesting to wonder how something can go through so many clerks and through a justice and come out incorrectly. And I'm wondering what is that entire process and whose kind of mark is on what part of the opinions? Paula wants to write all over the opinion in red pen and then send it to them. <laughs> Just you like know, send a note. I, I have sent notes to chambers saying, you got this wrong. Um, and sometimes it leads to a correction. Um, you know, and I don't see why it would be any different coming from me or coming from you. So go ahead and send that note. You know, the process, it differs depending on the chambers, depending on the justice. Some justices do the first draft and then kind of hand it over to their clerk and say, clean it up. Breyer used to do that. I don't know what he's been doing since um, the URI clerk. Stevens famously yeah. did it. Yeah, and would sort of write an introduction. Stevens. And, and, and then give us an outline and say, okay, and walk you orally through what she wanted. And then you would do that. And then you have this back and forth. Every justice is different. But when it comes to site checking and quote checking, some justices would do it themselves. Sometimes Scalia did that himself famously, but it really falls on the clerks to make sure at the end of the day that all of that is absolutely spot on accurate. And it's concerning if there are opinions that come out that are not. Um, but it happens. You know, I've seen in my own line of work, the cases that I particularly follow, I'll see a case cited for a proposition that it did not hold. Um, I'm thinking of a reference to like the wrong reporter. I used to be right. like so gobsmacked. I'm like, this is like, they're acting like this is a circuit case. This is just another district court case. This is crazy. Like, I don't know. Sorry. Just little things like that would drive me nuts. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's really significant because the court is staffed in a way that errors like that should not happen. But I will say, you know, hearkening back to an earlier conversation, we're seeing more of that in these shadow docket decisions because they're being issued so quickly. Yeah, they're done and very fast and they're not precedent or they're theoretically not precedential. And so, so you have less uh, inhibitions about being reckless and wrong. Yeah, so um, it's not ideal. But well, this is how I feel about summary opinions, just for what it's worth. I always thought that they were on like poor. I mean, you write down anything. And even though summary opinions, like, for example, are like supposed to not be precedential at the circuit court level, like if you put enough text in them, people will start using them as summary, like as precedent, like if you put enough facts and you kind of, you know, so it just it's. I don't know. I, I totally agree with you. I think that's a really interesting question, how the norms of like the court change over time. And uh, yeah, this all reminds us, thanks for endorsing Steve Vladek to be our next guest. Uh, <laughs> oh, you should definitely have him on. Oh, we've okay. had him many times. Yes, he's a good friend. <laughs> no, but, but about um, the book. I know you've had him on, but you should have him on about the book. It's yeah, going to be so significant. It's going to be a great book. Yeah. We're going to leave it there. I'm going to send another Thank you so much for joining us. You're a great American. This was so <laughs> Thank fun. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. I, I, I'm a big fan of both of you, and it's always fun to hang out. Thank you for being so warm and wonderful. And thank you for writing this book with Justice Ginsburg. It's a gift for all of us. So thank you so much. We will be back 46 hours and 57 minutes from now. Our uh, our guest is going to be Lila Shapiro on uh, the Joss Whedon 
controversies or uh, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, this is really just Kate's excuse to nerd out for uh, a little uh, bit an about Buffy about the Vampire Buffy. Slayer. Um, uh, we will also <laughs> be we will also be joined um, by um, the cast of Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, that will uh, you know we're going to tweet at between now and then to see if they want to join. Um, and until then, Kate. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to share great memories about a pretty beloved and amazing justice and someone who I am just, you know, I wept openly on the show the day that she passed away. And um, it was, this was just like a really lovely tribute to her. And I'm so glad that, that we had you to do it, Amanda. So thank you so much for coming. It was great to see you. You too. Thank you. Joy.